How often have you heard it said, the census count determines how much federal money a state, county, or city will get? Data analysis by the Project on Government Oversight shows that supposition is not quite as simple as it sounds. Federal Drive host Tom Temin got more from Pogo senior policy analyst Sean Moulton. So what were you looking at here? You went back and kind of countered the methodology that the census uses in its statements about how the money gets distributed based on the decennial count. What were you looking at here? Well, what we wanted to look at was a slightly narrower definition. The, the Census Bureau did put out some updated data just earlier this year talking about the use of census data, which was very helpful. But they took a very broad look, which is fair. <laughs> it's their agency and they get to take credit for any time someone uses their data. I, I won't begrudge them that. But what we were really concerned about was when local census numbers, state, city, county numbers, when they are what get depended upon for money that then reaches that state, county, city. And so that geographic allocation, the Census Bureau included programs in there like Pell Grants, uh, educational Pell Grants, where census data is used to set sort of a national eligibility, a household income eligibility. But if you get your numbers wrong in Maryland, it's not going to affect Maryland students' applications to Pell Grants. And so everyone's going to be kind of affected the same. So it doesn't geographically change the distribution of money in Pell Grants. What we looked at were programs where if you got an undercount or even an overcount, it might affect how much money your region got. So again, we we looked at a slightly narrower definition. And what are some of those programs that do vary by the actual number of noses they managed to come up with? It's a lot of programs that people have probably heard of, not that people have heard of all the federal programs out there. You have to be pretty wonky like me to know those names. But I mean, Medicare, Medicaid, those are some of the big drivers of these numbers. SNAP, which used to be called food stamps for people who remember them that way, but the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, Head Start, School Lunch, School Breakfast, Highway Construction. It makes sense even when you hear that, that they're being driven by the population they're trying to serve. It really was. I think it was 338 programs, federal programs that we identified, which, uh, yeah, I mean, it accounted for $2.1 trillion in a single year of spending. We looked at fiscal year 2020 because we wanted to make sure all the money had been fully spent and $2.1 trillion, more than that in one year. Well, did you find any anomalies? That is to say, no one knows really whether the count was right or not. The count gets certified and that's the count. And there's no real other source of information other than conjecture to say, well, no, our county has 50,000 more people you missed. Yes, you're right. The decennial census that happens uh, every 10 years, that is definitive. We really don't change that. But what the Census Bureau does is after each decennial census, they do a post-count survey. And when they did that, they, they basically take a statistical sample in every state. Uh, And they send out a follow-up survey and they see if there are differences, immediate differences, people they missed at households or or people that got overcounted. And their survey this year revealed statistically inaccurate counts in a number of states. We had undercounts in, I think, five states and overcounts in seven states. And that was statewide. What they didn't get into was undercounts and overcounts, messed up counts in local areas, in your city, in your county. So we could have even more, you know, in in Detroit or in Atlanta, we might have undercounts that aren't big enough to skew the whole state, but they're big enough to skew how much money is going to that particular city. 
We're speaking with Sean Moulton. He's senior policy analyst at the Project on Government Oversight. And I guess there's another question that maybe wasn't part of your study, but I'm looking at just one of the 34 pages of those 300 and some programs that you list. And let's say, you know, National School Lunch Program, that's been around forever, $24 billion program. It's a lot of lunches, a lot of macaroni. But is there a correlation simply by the head count or is it the student count? Because you could get the same amount of money one county to the next, but the other one has 50% more school-aged children locally. How fine-grained does it get? It gets very fine-grained. Each one of these programs, people often try and simplify it and say, well, my state got X amount of money and there's this many people in my state. So so per person, we got, say, you know, $10,000. So every person we missed, we lose $10,000. It is not that simple. It is far from that simple. As you're saying, there's there's a good number of these uh, educational programs, school lunch, school breakfast, Title I. What they really care about is school children. So if you miss an adult or an elderly person, it doesn't matter at all. It's not going to affect those programs. And Title I grants to schools, those are even more specific. It's not just school children, but it's it's school children from households below the poverty level. You're talking about within school children age, uh, you know, what about the, the kids from the poor areas or poor neighborhoods? Are you missing those? And again, every every program is a little different. And so it gets to be not just how many people did you undercount, but exactly who did you miss or overcount, I should say. Sometimes overcounts can cost you money as well. Now, how does that work in something like highway planning and construction from the Transportation Department, Forty, almost a $46 billion program? Does it go by how many miles of roads you have in your area? Because that's not something the census counts. Or how many bridges and this kind of thing? No, no. The highway program is more about the number of people that a state has. That money goes to states, to a state agency. And so it comes down to how then the state agency distributes it within their area and whether or not they use census. This is the federal distribution. And sometimes that federal distribution comes directly to your city. Uh, Community development block grants go straight to counties and cities and bypass state agencies entirely. But something like the highway, they use census data, I should say, to, to allocate the money. But then it goes to a state agency who has a lot of control over then where that money gets spent that year. Sure, but just to look at it from another angle, take a little tiny state like Rhode Island geographically, but Mm -hmm. it's got many more people than a gigantic geographic state like Wyoming. Wyoming might have more miles of roads than Rhode Island. I don't know that be a fact because there's more density in cities and so forth around, you know, Pawtucket and there's cities that have lots of streets, density, not so much in Wyoming for the most part, but it's nevertheless a calculus based on population. Well, it's a calculus based on, in part on population. The census part is the population, but they do take into account that program, other factors such as you're saying miles of road, but that you're right, that doesn't come from census. So the the census part is going to be a straight population number. Got it. So when Congress then or when the Transportation Department decides where their $46 billion in roads go, they don't rely only on the census data, in other words. Correct. Some of these are complete formulas with lots of other factors being brought in, census being one of them. Others are thresholds, money going to rural areas. Whenever you see something about like rural electrification, how we distinguish if an area is rural or urban, that's entirely based on population density. And so that's a good example of where an overcount 
could wind up missing out an area on money. Because if you're getting a high enough population that you're close to that threshold between counting as rural or counting as urban, if you overcount your population a bit, you might cross that threshold and no longer qualify for any of the of rural money that's out there. Got it. Well, then, based on all of this analysis, what's your sense that census should do anything different? Are they doing everything pretty much the way they should constitutionally and according to you know what seems fair for distribution of federal funds? I think census is doing a lot right. There's big changes afoot. Last decennial census, the first time we used administrative records, really, to fill in some of this stuff, which, which makes sense. There's a lot more data available in, in sort of government records already. What I think we need to do is we need to properly resource and support these efforts. We need Congress to, to be properly funding the census. They begrudge the census. It's an expensive operation to count so many people. But the reality is a lot of money depends on it. This is pennies on the dollar. I mean, we depend on these decennial numbers for 10 years, trillions of dollars every year that we're spending. And if we get them wrong, we're sending the money to the wrong places. The other big thing I think that I take away from this is that states need to get more involved. As I said, we had a number of states with undercounts, overcounts, and those states need to play a bigger role in encouraging their citizens to participate, making sure they understand how to fill out the census, not to fill it out if they're moving at a particular date or if they have more than one residence, fill it out once and to fill it out accurately. Sean Moulton is Senior Policy Analyst at the Project on Government Oversight. We'll post this interview along with a link to his study at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Count on the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, 
so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was 
really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out 
certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.